but we are rolling here. Um, let me just make a note here. Alright. Okay. Alright. Alright. Are you ready to gavel this to order, Ben Wallen? I certainly am. Let's do it. Gaveled. So gaveled. Um, all right, Ben Wallen, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Uh, I want to first apologize. We were sort of 30 seconds ago lamenting that we, we don't actually know each other personally, uh, other than sort of like maybe smelling each other's per, uh, cologne as we walk past each other in basic, but like that, that's as close as we know each other. But I've, I've known of you as, I think I first ran across you as a, as an arranger of a steel drum piece. And I don't, to be quite honest, I don't remember which piece it was, but I came across your name in the steel band world. Oh Um, my. Whether or not that is what you intended, that's how it happened. Um, (laughs) And, you know, but, but honestly, Ben, that's, that's kind of all I know about you. And these podcasts are for me kind of the most enjoyable where I get to, you know, I love talking with old friends, but I love sort of picking chewing the fat with somebody I don't know. And, and so after this hour or so, like, um, you know, we, we can go wherever we want to go, but, but I'm kind of curious for you, Ben, before we get rolling here, um, with, you know, we can go on a million tangents, but what pretend I, we've never met and I, we've never heard of each other, but like, what, what, what do I need to know about baby Ben Walland and like why you got into doing the things that you're doing. I'm assuming you didn't start arranging steel drum stuff out of the womb. Um, Can you sort of like, give me the nickel and dime tour of Ben Wallen and then we'll, we'll go wherever after that. Sure. I'll try to keep it to two minutes or so. Uh, Um, Three, (laughs) three, if you're feeling generous, that sounds great. Uh, My brother and I uh, grew up in a very musical household. My dad was a band director in the army and my mom was a music educator. Um, In fact, both my parents um, met in college when they were music majors at Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. And my dad uh, joined the military and had a roughly a 15-year run um, directing bands and was stationed in Korea and Japan and Germany, Maryland and Texas. And well, I, uh, Ben, I've already interrupted you, so this is the worst podcast ever. But like, like oh, no worries. Uh, I just have a ton of questions. So like you're uh, pardon my ignorance of the way the military band system works. I've only, I've given one masterclass to the West point group <laughs> when they were playing Zanakis a years ago with me and Eric. And it was hilarious. Cause I was like, Hey, you're coming in late. And everybody in the ensemble was like, no, 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 no. Don't say that to him. And I was like, why? They're like, because he's a staff sergeant. I was like, I don't give a fuck. He's coming in late. Like that's what's happening. You know, sure. it, it's like, but nobody in the, nobody in the ensemble could actually tell him that because of the way the hierarchy worked. <laughs> and so Eric and I were just there like, all right, I don't care what any of you are ranked. You're either coming in right or you're not. And they were sort of like, oh, thank God, somebody's just calling balls and strikes. Like, what, for, well, your sure. dad, for your dad, like, what was his primary, when he entered the military, was his primary yeah. goal was to, to, to deal with band stuff? Or was it, like, what, what was his job like? Like, why, why did sure. he end up doing that? So my dad's uh, rank was a chief warrant officer. Um, so okay. he was the full-on director of bands. Um, so he was the guy with the baton uh, on the podium. Um, and uh, when he retired, he was a CW4. Um, he was I don't originally know what that a trumpet. Is. I don't know what that is. You could have just said oh. any, sil- oh. <laughs> any, any letters and a number, and I'd have been like, cool. Sounds great. Oh, sure. <laughs> he's a, he's yeah, an XY so- 7.5. Like, you know. <laughs> Well, so uh, his job was to run the bands. He would run rehearsals. He would organize their outings. 
So like when, when he was stationed in Ansbach, Germany, where our family lived, um, well, we lived technically in a smaller town nearby, but um, it was his job to organize uh, the trips like during Oktoberfest to local beer tents and stuff like that. And then the band in general would play as just kind of guest bands. So, And you were, uh, you were how old at this time? Oh gosh, that was uh, that was I was six, six, so, and seven, and eight. Um, and again, like I'm, I, when I was six, I was in Dover, Ohio, and I, and, <laughs> and, I, and listen, I love I I ah, put my ashes there. I'm fine with it, but like, I'm curious as a six year old, like, was Germany like? Were you asking your dad like, yo, dad, this is cool, but like. My friends at home are watching NFL, and like, yeah, like, yeah. like what was well, it like for you as a kid in Germany? Well, there's something really you're you're hitting on something that's that I've gone back to a number of times because like the town we lived in was celebrating its 1,250th year anniversary, <laughs> uh, which no American know? has ever and, been able to do. <laughs> well, sure, you know. <laughs> and so it was. Uh, we were in Bavaria, which is like that really Franconian, like um, like the the black and white diamonds everywhere. You know what I'm saying? And the and the flags uh, hanging, and uh, there's a big gorgeous church in every town and things and um yeah i i think both my brother and i sort of took for granted that like a trip to paris was a weekend trip you know what i mean or like we'd like mm-hmm. all of a sudden find ourselves in nuremberg or uh, like and yeah. my parents as a kid uh, i was they, like i found myself in canton well yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're like oh i just woke job, up i was like, in paris traveling a bunch you know so uh it was awesome but yeah. in the in the early 80s because uh, i was born in 77 you know like mm. we had uh, like we i have memories of like berlin and east berlin and west berlin and seeing the berlin wall and things um so like in the height of the cold war uh, like we had this this big picture that america was this amazing amazing place and sometimes my dad would go home and visit his parents or uh, visit his uh, family and um and he'd come back with things from america like uh, we we got a houdini album and like run dmc and my brother and i were just sure that like everyone was breakdancing and stuff so that was our that was our thing was like beat street and break in and all that you know mm. uh and we were shocked when my dad got stationed in Texas to learn that, like, oh, no, no, not all Americans, like, breakdance, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, there's James Brown, there's, like, Bob Seger, there's well, Randy totally. Newman, there's a whole lot of American music that's happening. Well, yeah, and, and you might have caught that my, my parents were from North Dakota, so, like, my dad, like, we'd be, you know, driving around the Alps listening to, like, Charlie Daniels Band and stuff. <laughs> and, like, like some full, like, Alabama and then Does it ever BC strike you that you might have been the only person ever to have listened to, like, Alabama <laughs> in the Alps? <laughs> like, I, like, I yeah, guess I never gave it much thought, but I think you're right. Rare, like A rare club. Uh, yeah, so it was pretty binary. Like, it was uh, either Houdini or... Uh, you know, uh, well, Alabama. You know? <laughs> Char- Charlie Daniels band. Sorry, that was the yeah. original. Sorry. No worries. Yeah, and um, yeah. So it was, it was a trip in large part because we were moving every two or three years. You know, um, so my memory of childhood almost always involved going from, you know, uh, culture to culture to culture, which at the time was you know really challenging for our family, of course, but. Uh, that's also just what it is to be a military brat. And but also, I mean, uh, one of the guys in so I'm I'm really sorry, Ben, and I'll Where buy is? you a case of beer for for interrupting you a million times. But when I hear, uh, you know, one of the guys in so Adam, he moved a lot as a kid. He wasn't a military brat um, yeah. 
to use the term, inappropriately, but, um, but he moved a lot. And I remember him talking a lot about like the way he, what he is now, the way he interacts with people, the way he, and again, like I'm misdiagnosing some of Adam's personality here, but like I've known him now for 15 years and it's like, oh yeah, like the way he sees the world is because he was, he moved from Alpharetta, Georgia to Denver to Boston to like all these other places every two or three years. Like for you as a, you know, now as a teacher where you have, you have students underneath you who are like listening to everything you say, hopefully. And like, or and now you're an adult with a fully formed prefrontal cortex. Like, is there any part of you now that you're like, Oh, this is, I am the way I am because for better or worse, the reality of my, my parents' livelihood of like, I had to become a different, I had to, I had to sell someone on on how awesome I was every two years. I, as a kid in Dover, Ohio, I sold someone in kindergarten on how awesome I was, and that investment paid off in high school. You know, I was playing the quad toms and hanging out with like the star quarterback because I knew the quarterback in first grade. But yeah. for you, like, what was that like as a kid growing up? Like, you know, remove all the sort of like, yes, you you're a successful teacher and a percussionist and all that stuff, but like, that had to suck on some level. You know, it really did. Yeah, I mean, I I have a lot of memories of that sucking. You know, um, and I can, in a lot of areas of my adulthood, I can absolutely trace a straight line to certain aspects of what it is to have moved around a lot. You know, um, yeah, because you know things that uh, worked in El Paso, Texas, didn't work three years later for a middle school kid. And middle school, mind you, is already brutal for kids, right? You know, but then <laughs> it's brutal for kids and for parents and for teachers. It's the worst. Like when armpit <laughs> hair enters the equation, I feel like every kid should just be sent to like you know whatever the equivalent of Australia was. Like let's just send them to an island until all their armpit hair is in, and then they can come back. <laughs> no doubt, <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I remember like things that were funny in Texas weren't funny in northeastern Pennsylvania, which right. then weren't funny in North Dakota, where my family finally moved when I was in high school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we were, I was constantly trying to recalibrate, you know, what was appropriate socially, you know? And mm-hmm. I was actually kind of thinking, um, like, hangs professionally for me are always a little awkward um just because it's it's hard to feel comfortable working a room you know okay okay Um, okay but me too oh sure and i'm not a military brat so like this is where like you and i have something in common i after a show like last night we played at princeton university it was the first live show back at princeton two years oh way to go it, oh, it was great. It was lovely. But after the show, I was like, I kind of had a moment of, of it wasn't fear or, insu- I don't know how to describe it, but it was like, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to anybody. Sure. <laughs> I want to wrap cables and I want to get in my Honda, my Honda Accord yeah. and drive home and listen to podcasts. Like, I don't yes. want to. And, <laughs> and so for me, it was like that, 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 that weird sort of like what my job was versus what people think my job is and what I want to do. Like. But but for you, like, why why do we have that in common, I guess, is my, my question. I'm intrigued by that, yeah. Um, I mean, I certainly can't speak for you why, uh, why you feel that way, you know. Um, I know for me, um, it, it takes a certain degree of energy, you know, and it's a different kind of flavor of energy than what it takes to perform, you know. Um, uh, so I, I think that's part of it. I, I certainly enjoy people. In fact, I, I think I enjoy people so much one-on-one that when it's like five or six people, it's it gets really overwhelming really fast, you know. And mm. 
and you just see your friend like maybe getting kind of rolled over by some person and you just you want to go help them somehow or you catch that some other conversation somewhere else is going south and like you feel somehow obligated to uh well to to engage everyone in one way or another you know um so what i've found is i'm almost always guilty of just kind of just dragging some poor person into a corner and talking all night at a wedding or something like that and um (laughs) yeah i've never been a big like i've always hated like i mean so we get put in these positions all the time where it's like oh sure here's a room where like there's a bunch of donors or the board is here and i'm like i'm sure they're awesome people and i want to absolutely make every one of them feel special but like I just ran naked through the park for all of them for two hours. <laughs> like <laughs> totally. what I need to do, what I need to do, what I, I, is it okay to tell them that what I need is real housewives of orange County right now? <laughs> like I need to go to my hotel room and just like put on blinders and be like trash TV for like four sure. hours just to feel like I can recharge my tank, you know, but as a musician, that's, I feel guilty about that. I mean, I genuinely do. I genuinely feel like someone who paid to come see me play, deserves the right to ask me a million questions they have that right but i also feel like no (laughs) (laughs) i did my job it's like you came to walmart and you bought a bunch of stuff it's not like you get to ask the cashier like how they spend their money all day like like this is this is i want to go home like but i feel guilty about it well, it certainly doesn't make you an a-hole to set those appropriate boundaries. You know what I mean? Like, Well, it, maybe it doesn't make me one to them, but I feel like one. So what sure. I feel like is is maybe – Well, know, and I think there, there are so many conventions around what it is to be a musician or certainly a successful one that I think I've spent the better part of my adulthood trying to shed what some of those expectations are. You know, mm, mm. Um, I know for me, for instance, I'm a morning person. I don't really get amped about – playing at night a bunch. In fact, just performing in general, I mean, I don't have full-on anxiety about it or anything. I just enjoy composing more. I enjoy teaching more. And I'm happy to throw down when it's time. But, I, like, when I when I daydream music ideas, I'm almost always daydreaming other people doing them. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. But, like, no, I, totally, like totally. hey, it would be really cool if it was a percussion trio and a poet. And then... Um, I never really imagined myself being the poet or the percussion tree. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. totally. And, yeah, and I'm really grateful that I'm surrounded by all sorts of people who are good to do that. Like, they get excited about that, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, you were asking about what it was uh, to move around a lot as a kid. Um, I, I I have a pretty, like, understated lifestyle when all is said and done. Like I, I don't really have a really big appetite for travel. Um, Mm -hmm. again, like I'm happy to travel when I can, but like if, if I don't end up going to India before I pass away, it's not going to like really eat me up, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. in large part, because as a kid, you know, I, I didn't really know what it was to be in a community for five or 10 or 15 years, you know? So, well, that's one of the things, that's one of the things too, that like, I just want to mark here. Like you, you were fortunate enough in terms of like I don't want to say privilege. That's not the word to use. Because um, just I don't mind calling it that. Yeah, I mean it's but it's uh, it's got a connotation. It was hard, it was hard got, for our family, but I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, there were some benefits. I think that like if you're looking at if you're just calling balls and strikes, like your experience, I think gave you an awareness of the world that that my experience just didn't do until I was about eighteen or nineteen, and yeah. like. For me, I think I'm now, I'm coming back, I'm coming at it from the back end, which is like, holy shit, culture is relative. Morality, 
morality is relative. Yes. Whether or not you agree with it, like, I'm sorry, the moralities in the Middle East or the moralities in Ethiopia, in the way that things, the way the ecosystems work, or the moralities in, like, Louisiana versus Ohio versus Wisconsin, like, mm-hmm. there's there's relativity to the world, and it's only been through travel, and, like, that's the thing, that's the thing that sort of, like, sparked the flag for me. Yeah. It's like, that's what travel does and exposure to the world does is give you this sense that like, Oh, I'm not alone. Yeah. And I have a strong view of the world. I believe in my view of the world, but when I was, you know, 21 years old and was in Trinidad and was in, was the only, you know, one of two white guys in the yard where the particular culture that I grew up in, the ecosystem that I worked in, didn't like the key and the lock didn't fit together naturally. And I had to sort of in that moment be like, how do I do this? <laughs> and then sort of like try different keys in those three weeks I was in Trinidad. I was just like trying different keys and mm-hmm. finally one unlocked and, and a gentleman behind me wearing like black Panther fatigues. <laughs> like, you know, I know like I'm 21. I don't know what the fuck racism is. Like I, sure. I, I don't know what any of this shit is. And he's talking to me about, you know, Huey Newton and Malcolm X and all these people. And I'm just like, cool. Like I'm playing double seconds, you know? (laughs) And, but at that moment I was like, Oh, like I, my ideology isn't the only one. I don't know how to interface with that. But like for you, like what, uh, I don't know. Like has, has that collision of the older you get, what was what are some of the ideologies maybe from young Ben Walland that now like the older you are that you're sort of maybe actually believe in like yeah you know 19 year old Ben was right I'm sure. I'm right on that or what are some things that you sort of like teased out and been like oh shit I need to yeah. think about this a little differently Oh I hear you I um yeah I've I've wondered if this is just what it is to be in our 40s is to like when you start doing those weird games of like oh gee you know when my uncle was this age you know he had done blank you know or yeah, yeah. like wow when I was you know 7 my dad was this old or something like that you know mm-hmm. um at a at a young age um I feel pretty um uh, it's it's a mixed bag to kind of weigh what it was to be away from my grandparents as much as we were. But when we were with them, because we moved around, it was once every couple of years, uh, it felt precious, you know. Um, mm. Unfortunately, uh, my grandparents on my dad's side, um, I never got to meet. Um, they had uh, passed away uh, when I was particularly young. Well, my grandpa before I was born. Um mm. And, um, but on my, my mom's side, it was an every couple of years thing. And the small town we lived in, in Germany, we were really fortunate that there were, um, there was a husband and wife who were our landlords who kind of took us in like grandchildren. And they were really cool. Uh, they were super generous, um, both with their time, but like with their spirit, you know, and mm-hmm. so they didn't treat my brother and me like anomalies or anything. Like they were just like, they were just super hospitable. Mm-hmm. And I guess one thing that I carried with me is this idea that like old people are actually cool. <laughs> and, uh, and it took a long time to finally put words to that, you know? Um, yeah. and as I've gotten older and I've met so many amazing mentors, like I, I, I think I kind of traced that back to, uh, 
one of the cool kind of crossing of paths that happened when we didn't live near our grandparents, you know? Um, yeah. So that, well, that's one of my greatest regrets. I think the, the moment you mentioned your grandparents, I was like, fuck, I'm going to have to shit. Thanks Ben. Now I'm going to have to own up to my own, like the things, the regrets I have in life, they're few actually. Like when I, you know, my darkest moments, I regret a lot, but in my most lucid moments, I'm like, I wish I would have asked my grandpa Don about his time in Bremen, Germany. Yeah. Like, well, I, cause, cause I played, I played a concerto in Bremen with the orchestra there, you know, like, oh. like, like, and he was fighting the Nazis, you know? <laughs> so like, like, like this is, this is like two people ago. I, you know, and we're in the same town and he's, he's fighting the Nazis and I'm fighting, uh, David Lang, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, and so like those, that's the regret he's gone. I'll never be able to ask him. I'll never be able to ask my grandmother what it was like to worry about my grandpa. Well, and I think, you know, like that's just, Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. And I, but I think, I think that's absolutely part of the human condition. You know, um, uh, as we get older and our, hopefully our wisdom kind of becomes a little more clarified, mm -hmm. of course, there's going to be certain aspects of regret about our childhood. I would hope like, mm -hmm. otherwise you're just an overgrown 15 year old, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I, mean, I, I think there's space for that. <laughs> you know, I, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Well, you know, I can tell you uh, something I regret is I went back and visited them uh, in 1998. Um, my jazz band that I was in in undergrad, we went and played the Montreux Jazz Festival. Whoa. And I got to spend like a, a week by myself after they went home. And I went back and kind of toured my my childhood home area around there. And I, something really embarrassing happened. Um, like here I was like 21, right? And our hosts, um, the uh, the the grandfather, if you will, um, who had who had been our our um, our landlords. Um, he and I were alone one day, and he said, "So, what were you thinking you'd like to do in Germany?" And I have these like, like you know how these memories you have of childhood, you don't quite know what you remember of them. Do you know, like they get they start getting fuzzy the older you get, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember we went to a concentration camp when I was a kid. Like wow. I was maybe all of like seven you know um i think it was dachau and i wanted to go see dachau just to like kind of like get right in my head about what i actually took in mm. and and his face kind of dropped a little you know and it dawned on me that here's this guy who was a kid during world war ii mm. and he had told me his memories of world war ii were being in a shelter and hearing bombs go off uh, uh, above the shelter and hearing his town get decimated. Like, um, so even this guy, a generation away from me, was a kid who wasn't an adult during that. Mm -hmm. And for mm -hmm. him, it was a completely different experience as a German than what our Time Life series on World War II would tell us, you know. And, right. and what, what was kind of hurtful for me was just seeing this look in his face. And he said, so you like history? And I said, yeah. And he, he said, well, let me take you to some um, uh, some Roman bathhouses that are near the town, you know. And while we went there, he started lecturing me all about Franconian history and like what it was uh, and the Germanic Empire and everything. Mm -hmm. And he politely redirected this this big misstep on my part where like I wanted to talk about Nazis I wanted to like I wanted to go to the like the the rally fields in Nuremberg and stuff the, mo the most obvious stuff 
Yeah, and and he's firing back it's like you know that was just uh, that was a pretty awful chapter in our history. We have other things going for us, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about like some of the amazing heritage of Germany, like yeah, and it does give me a little bit of hope for where the United States is right now. Mm-hmm. Like it, in some ways, it helps me frame it as growing pains. Um, like I'd like to think that we can figure this out, you know, because um, it's yeah. it's a scary time I think for a lot of people, but I imagine a lot of very old countries have seen things like this, you know. Yeah, it's one of the things as an American, like this is you know, growing up, you hear the term American exceptionalism <laughs> or the yeah. shiny city upon a shining city upon a hill, and you sort of yeah, uh, you're made to feel I don't know. I studied American history, and you think about. 1776 that was 150 some odd you know years ago or whatever it was like yeah. you know 100 200 years ago or whatever i'm terrible with dates so please forgive my math but no like, worries yeah you know and it feels like that was like eight tv shows ago sure you know you're like that was that was archie bunker and we are now in seinfeld like this is this is the <laughs> americans like no nah, nah, that was an old tv show it's like no 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 Actually, like that was maybe think about that as like 75,000 days ago instead of 175 years ago. Like this is this is a continuation. And oh, wow, it turns out that our our empire is only 200 and some odd years old. The Greeks and the Romans had like a couple grand like, holy shit, like we don't know anything. And like when you and anyway, just to say, like when you you put it in context of other countries, like we're not that much different. We're having a similar struggle. There's human beings are trying to figure things out. And it's just, anyway, it's, I don't, I don't have a good question here, Ben, but it's leading to me, me leading me to my next question, which was to sort of divert us from this sort of political uh, abyss that we're all heading towards. But like, well, I'm, it, could I'm I actually sorry, take this moment just to chime in on something I've yeah. heard you say before that, I suspect maybe some listeners might benefit from. Uh, mm. uh, I, I was thinking of this hearing when you had asked about what it was to move around a lot and mm-hmm. how it kind of frames our our idea of things in adulthood. Yeah, um, you've you've made mention before of Ohio and what it was to be a kid in Ohio and yeah. how you know people who are watching people right now and who are kind of struggling with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we see on all sorts of aspects of the political spectrum, you know, and what I can offer up uh, something that I've, that I slowly came to see that I'm really excited about is that there's absolutely wisdom to be found um, in the strangest of places. And just because someone might have nasty looking clothes or a funky job or a goofy accent, like that's absolutely no reason for them not to, uh, be intelligent, right? <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and I know there's plenty of people all over different political spectrums that are incredibly smart that I just disagree with. And yeah. I, I also have very strong feelings and thoughts, you know, um, politically speaking. Yeah. Um, and I struggle with, um, well, just how toxic people have gotten about it. Um, because mm-hmm. kids are watching. There are 12-year-olds watching this behavior, reading this behavior. Yeah. And we can do it better. Like, I, I'm okay with us disagreeing. I'm not okay with people being so awful with each other. You know? yeah. yeah. No, I, I I totally agree with you. And that's been, I mean, if anybody knows me and has been following me at all on, on social media, like that, yeah. 
you know, uh, I want a big tent. I'd rather have a thousand flawed friends than two perfect ones. <laughs> and yeah. I feel like the older I get, the more that I uh, work my way through emotionally what it was like to, you know, through the Trump presidency. Like, I, th- I honestly thought, like, the Trump administration was going to break me from the idea that I wanted to, you know, commune with people who were different <laughs> from me. And it was like, actually, it hardened my resolve for wanting to be with people other than me. Yeah. Um, And it actually made me realize that the people who I thought were more like me, like the Caribbean community that I work with in Brooklyn, in the steel band world, like the more you spend time with people, the more you realize like you get to the different levels of nuance, like the different geological layers. Like once you drill, if you're willing to drill a mile deep rather than a mile wide, Mm Mm-hmm. You're going to find that like, oh, wow, you mean these are people too? <laughs> right. <laughs> you mean their views on, you know, liberal politics or abortion or gay rights or LBGDQ rights or trans rights. Like all of this stuff is nuanced too, even within the monolithic black community <laughs> or the monolithic Latino community or the monolithic white community. Like, right. like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I'm sorry. Yes, Jews have views on Palestine and, and, and Israel, but I'll bet if you drill down deeper, you're going to find a lot more nuance and a lot more confusion than you find on the surface. Yeah, And that to me has over the last five or six years has been the biggest disappointment in, in my colleagues, not, not, not I don't want to say like my colleagues and so, but just like the community that I'm swimming in the yeah. most, like I have a lot of fear. I'm terrified of them because I'm like, Oh, you don't actually, not only do you not have the drills to drills deeper to drill deeper, you actively don't want to acquire the drills. <laughs> like that is the thing. Like that's more terrifying than not having the drills. Is like you don't actually have any interest in in getting a few inches deeper below the, the the crust of what it is that's that's causing these issues. And so anyway, long story short, that's been my my biggest beef. Yeah. But yeah. For me, sometimes, well, first of all, I mean, what you're talking about uh, feels a lot like, I don't know, a, a sad part of the human condition when it, you know, like when yeah. people haven't really had a good opportunity to explore um, a challenging, um, yeah. oh, personalities or ideas and stuff. But the, of course, the social media echo chamber uh, just galvanizes that for people so much. And and that's where I kind of wish I could run around hugging everyone and just be like, mm. settle down. It's okay. Mm. Don't spend more than 15 minutes. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like don't because, read the comments. Don't, don't well, read the sure. comments. Don't respond to the comments. Like just, well, and I think we're both of, of a certain age where we saw the internet come to be. And I, I don't know about you. I, I didn't see this coming, you know, like I, um, Funny enough, I felt like I saw Donald Trump coming because if it wasn't Donald Trump, it just as easily could have been some other stand in like he's just particularly good at it. And if we weren't to have gotten him five years ago, we maybe would have gotten him another five years. You know, like like uh, that feels like something that was created and uh, we are going to have to contend with that as a as a um, well, a civilization. Um, 
But to me, what's uh, even a little more overwhelming is the social media ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and it feels like this big growing pain of humanity in general. Like, our brains just aren't wired for this yet. And this is where I am really intrigued to see where it's going to be in fifty years. Like, uh, like, are there going to be labels on computers like we used to have for like for cigarettes and stuff like like i, yeah, like, I, mean, I, I wonder if like in a decade people are going to be like i can't believe i let my kid have a tiktok account you know i think this is one of the things that 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 is the arrogance of um relevance like the area uh, sorry relevance may be the wrong word but like human beings who are alive right now you and i feel like we are relevant what we have to say and do and our experience <laughs> is what matters in the world right now right like but you know what that also that relevance that exact same emotional feeling that you and i are having about whether it be like how to teach steel pin or how to like yeah. how to arrange for the double seconds versus the guitar like that confidence you have is the same exact feeling people in 1801 had about not ending the slave trade. Yes. You know, like, and not because, and and again, like to be clear, not because people then were like, Oh, slavery's bad. We should end it. Or slavery's great. We should keep it for the economy. It was just like, it was a thing at that time that Mm. very few people were actually pissed off about actually pissed off about to the point where we're going to change policy where we're going to like go you know it was a societal norm yeah and facebook and instagram i have to be very careful here and i I immediately regret everything i just said of like i'm gonna get canceled but like i'm sorry (laughs) the way slavery was viewed in the 1700s early 1800s is not much different than the way facebook is look oh it's just part of society yeah there's some there's some things like yeah you got your sugar with your tea but you know, yeah, slavery brought you the sugar for your tea, but tea, like everybody drinks tea, right? Everybody but, wants sugar in their tea. So, but, like, why would we end this thing? Everybody wants to wake up and be like, look at my new Facebook. Look at all the likes I got. But why would we get rid of that? You know, like, that's a bad comparison. So, please, God, dis, dis, disarm everything I just – or tease out everything I just said. Well, if uh, maybe we could uh, pick it up at uh, like the invention of the cotton gin or something, uh, yes, like please. from there. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and the reason why I'm talking about it is like because to me, um, well, first of all, yeah, um, slavery clearly awful, um, but an entire country and not just the United States, but all sorts of civilizations uh, through. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, it's like the pyramids, right? <laughs> and I mean, it's it's okay. I, I don't want to say it's okay. I, I don't want to be dismissive of it, but I think it's a. I think it's a really crucially important when we study history to look at the way stuff was seen contextually, like the Salem witch trial, witch trials at the time. Nobody thought what was going on was crazy. Well, and that's where I'm going. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, like I, that's the point. Well, and I, I think about how there was a time when people were scared of uh, printed texts. There was yes. a time when people were scared of, uh, well, basically the, the entire industrial re- revolution. Mm-hmm. And of course, that that spawned things like sweatshops and things of that nature. Like we've had these um, times of growing pains that uh, always seem to coincide with new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've wondered sometimes if. Uh, if the technology wasn't there, if uh, slave trade still would have been happening, mm. um, 
uh, and I I don't know. I mean, I can't speak intelligently about that, but maybe I should start reading on it. I guess um, that I, if there's but, any book, there's one book called "Bury the Chains" by Adam Hochschild that was recommended to me by Andy Norell. I did a podcast. I did a series of podcasts with Andy during. I heard the, them, yeah, during the quarantine, Dude, and it was. <laughs> I lost a job because of him. <laughs> oh my god! I'm so sorry. Um, well, no, take no, it up. no. Uh, when I say it was Subway, I, I was a high school kid working at Subway. Oh, and, well, and then, I was complaining to a coworker that Andy Norell was in town mm-hmm. and uh and i was like really pouty about it all night and she told our manager and the manager just called me up the next day and said so i heard you were complaining all night about having to work at subway <laughs> well ben i will say yeah. let me just i could regret this i think it was worth it andy was right <laughs> you, were, <laughs> you were right about to complain about that job but 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 andy and i did a bunch of podcasts with andy where he talked about bunched about the sort of contextual history of of Calypso and, and steel band internet, but Barry the chains talks a lot about the sort of advocacy around the ending of the British slave trade in England and yeah. around, it was like 40 or 50 years of like 12 people meeting in a back room being like, all right, we're going to do it. And then the American revolution happens like across the ocean. And they're like, okay, we're going to have to hold off for like six years. Just pause. And it's like, <laughs> they, they put the whole Ending of the British slave trade on pause over like a meeting over 12 people to be like, okay, we just got to hold off for a second. Like, wow. Yeah. Like it just the nickel and like the day to day nickel and dime tour of how this stuff happens is way more interesting and way more convoluted than I think people want to admit. And well, and it's, it's way bigger than, uh, social media posts, you know, yes. you know, and, yeah. and, and it's so messy, but it's also so much more powerful that way too. You know, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember, do you remember when Andy Norell had posted all of these books that he had read? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I don't, do you remember this at all? It was like a list Vaguely, of something yeah. like 40 books or something like that. And, uh, uh, and I remember, um, just kind of seeing that list and thinking like, man, I have so much work to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I do remember this, this title and, and when you're talking about that and like uh, slave trade in the UK at large, you know, I, I'm, I was reminded of um, one of the books I read last year that, oh gosh, I'm, I'm so horrible with titles. That, is it why I don't talk to white people about race anymore? Uh, I don't know that book. Uh, well, what, what's so delightful about that book uh, and super challenging is a lot of what informed the history of that book was uh, racism in Great Britain. So specifically, so like there would be mention of riots. And I realized when I was reading this, that I didn't know um, because we have like 40 years of storytelling that we wrestle with when it comes to something like, uh, like a BLM narrative in the Mm -hmm. last year and a half, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and it, 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 like I feel this tugging of like compliance, like I'm supposed to believe this and think that because I, I respect people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to hear a whole nother chapter of of the history of racism in Great Britain, like it floored me. It was really challenging to think, wow, I've I have so many preconceived notions about things that I understood. Right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Malcolm X earlier, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I saw the, the Denzel Washington movie forever ago, you know, um, yeah. or like um, and that's nowhere close to what, you know, two guys in their two white guys in their 40s need to understand about Malcolm X. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and the reason why I'm talking about that is 
I've, um, I know a lot of what transpired in the last year and a half for me has given me a lot of, um, pause to just, um, to shut up and do homework, <laughs> you know, as much as I wanted to say a bunch of things, um, it was super important to listen and actually watch, you know, and to take in so much of what people had been uh, sharing and still do. Mm. And I feel really grateful for some really engaged students who, mm. um, though, um, though we don't find ourselves talking about it, I'm absolutely taking in, you know, their digital footprint and mm. uh, really floored by a lot of the ideas they're sharing, because I, I didn't see that from a lot of my classmates when I was their age, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this last year and a half has been, I mean, I've had a lot of guilt about it. I mean, I work, I work, yeah, I work with the Brooklyn Steel Bank community on a regular basis. Um, for me, a lot of, a lot of the stuff around, how to deal with race and particular how to interact with like, uh, sorry, there's not a better, like how to interact with black people. Like, I'm sorry. I wish there was a more elegant way to put it, but like that was the, if I was going to paint with a broad brush, that was the sort of general vibe over the last year and a half is like, what do black people want? You know, mm. like, what is it that like, listen, they're telling us. Right. And, but, what I was seeing online was 95% white people telling me what black people wanted. Well, uh, and I had a real hard time with that. I had a real hard time because I was hearing different private conversations from my colleagues that I was working with on a daily basis who were telling me things like we need access. Like we don't know how to apply for grants. Like, we don't know how to, we don't know how to run quick, QuickBooks. Like, what's QuickBooks? Well, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't know like, you know, or like just, well, what's commissioning? Mm -hmm. What's presenting a concert? What's a profit and loss statement? Like, and I'm not saying this to be like, um, elitist or anything, but like, those are the barriers that are, that are, that so percussion has surpassed. The four of us and so in, in the sense of like, we know how to run QuickBooks. Oh, I see. Why? Okay. Yeah. Because culturally it's just been in our ecosystem longer. Yeah. I had to learn it by road. I mean, I learned it by myself, but it was because someone else told me to learn it and I just figured it out. But now I'm working with a bunch of steel bands who are, you know, 90 to 140 players a piece in Brooklyn of ages from six to 76 who have zero idea what QuickBooks is. Yet when I'm online, the thing to do is to say, this is what you need to be advocating for and to advocate for like, you know, financial literacy or these other things is racist. And I'm like, hold up a second, <laughs> bitch, bitch. I've been hearing these conversations for a decade and now a bunch of white people are telling me that this is the way to talk. This is the way. And, I, and, and for me for a year and a half, I just felt like really confused like I was hearing two different conversations and, but, but, but calling balls and strikes, one was more powerful than the other. Mm -hmm. My white colleagues had more power in that conversation in terms of social media than the young kids I was working with on a daily basis who were like, where's middle C? Yeah. How do I read a treble clef? Because that's the way to then publish your music to then have your music played by, you know, the university of Akron in Ohio to then have your piece. Then you've got a work sample 
of the University mm. of Akron playing your piece, and then you can apply for a Chamber Music America grant. But right now, unfortunately, the economy is set up so that Ben Walland can apply for grants because Ben Wallen has a million performances of his music <laughs> out there. And this is no knock on you, Ben. It's just the truth. I hear you. And you know, it's just like, that's, that's the, the field I'm seeing in front of me. So like, I guess my larger question is, is like, what do we, without taking away how great you are, which is why I'm talking to you. Like, I, I love your music. I've only seen it a few times in person, but like, this guy's a fucking beast. Like I, I Boom, oh, box, <laughs> box checked in the same way that it's checked for me with Kendall Williams or Jerrion Williams or any of these other folks I work with. From your standpoint, and I know you have some questions for me too for this podcast. So we've already taken 47 minutes of your life, but like Ben. I, I, I'm going to have to be one of those uh, three podcast guests, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what do you see? Like, what do you see in terms of steel band stuff, in terms of how we deal and help with that ecosystem? Like, what? What do you see as the first couple steps? Well, for starters, I think I'm nowhere close to uh, being the person to be an authority on that, you know. Um, and before I even have that conversation, because I do have some thoughts about it um, that uh, really kind of resonate with me. And I'd like to think with some people I really love and respect. Um, uh, I... I should say I don't fancy myself as an authority on Pan much at all, right? I'm mm. uh, I, I'm a dude who happens to like steel pan, <laughs> um, and I have spent the majority mm. of my career uh, as a percussion educator um, mm. who happens to compose. Like I, like I, I kind of consider myself. Uh, not necessarily a composer, but just a guy who composes. Uh, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to be fair, I consider David Lang a composer. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Steve Rush is a composer. Um, so ben, for me, and I think David and Steve would both look at you and be like, "You sir are a composer, whether you like it or not. That's what you're called <laughs> well, <I> mean, now." <laughs> and one of the hard things about having done compositions is like, like you have tangible evidence of like 20 years ago I wrote this piece or that piece. Like when I think of some of my early stuff that I wrote for Steel Band, like I'm not crazy about it. You know, well, it's like, like it makes you wonder. Like, like, like you know, we 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 you see we have like History Channel documentaries of people with like paintbrushes being like. Tutankhamen's tomb. Well, <laughs> sure. like, but but well, like, and, what if the artists well, in Tutankhamen's tomb were like, no, 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 go over here, go over there. That's where well, the good and, shit is. <laughs> well, and, and this is why I'm so grateful to have had people in my life at really pivotal points who were just really decent to me. Um, and I think, like, when I look at some stuff that I have published from like 2000, <laughs> I was. <laughs> Gosh, I was, let's see, I was 22, and I was literally just sitting in front of a computer like, oh, it would be so cool if Pan did this. It would be mm -hmm. so neat if mm -hmm. this. And then, like, early 20-year-old Ben, who was like, I'm going to send this to a publisher and see what happens, you know, and um, uh, one of whom uh, wrote me back and said, hey, you have some promise. I don't know that I'd like to publish this. <laughs> and then the next guy was, no, let's go, you know, Um and oh, um, oh, his name um, escapes me right now because uh, he's uh, a panist, and he was really classy about it. Um, anyway, he went so far as to like full on give me a composition lesson through an email. Like he was like, awesome. the whole thing seems like one big introduction. You might want to consider this, and you might want to consider that. Um, 
And it was like the coolest rejection letter I ever got, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but sure enough, all of a sudden these things went to print. And, uh, and but of course, that's just what it is as you get older to have done projects, right? Is to look back yeah. and you're like, okay, well, I'm glad to think that I would be doing it differently now, you know. So there's that. Um, and when I studied PAN in college, um, it was in North Dakota. I was going to a private Catholic school in North Dakota. And, like, those North Dakota Sokas are a little different than in Trinidad, you know? <laughs> like, but that's okay. I mean, that's something, too, that I, I've sort of had to tease out over my, you know, I, I went to Trinidad yeah. in 2015 to see the ICP competition. You mm-hmm. hear a band from, from Japan, like, a Japanese Soka is way different than a Trinidadian Soka. Sure. But the audience in Trinidad went fucking berserk well, when they, they got done. And, like, well, like, and, like it's all the same. It all works, and it's all okay. Like, that's that's the you know North Dakota Soka. Like, that's what it is. Like, well, that's and fine. I'll tell you, it floored me. Like, I, I remember the first time I heard a steel pan ensemble. I remember the piece. I remember the room. I remember everything about the day, um, and it it was awesome. It was a whole new arena of percussion that I had always assumed was something other than what it is, you know? Mm, mm. Um, and when I first heard it, I thought, Oh, I so need to hear it play these ideas in my head, you know? Um, and by the time I arrived at NIU as a grad student about a decade later is when I met Cliff and I met Liam and they were nothing but supportive to this mediocre voice who came from North Dakota. Like they were just like, ah, sure. Let's, let's, let's play these arrangements, you know? And before long I was conducting, like, I remember, uh, cause I was a classmate of Yuko's and, um, yeah. and she and I are good friends. And I think, uh, when she was a grad student, she had done a, an arrangement of Havanas, you know, mm-hmm. for, uh, for this. And she needed a conductor and I had just come off of teaching middle school. So I had my conducting chops sort of, like, I to have be. a King David baton. I can conduct. Well, sure. You know, <laughs> well, and it was just this lab for messy, messy ideas. And there's been Perfect. so many times now where I've been so grateful for Pan as a voice in my percussion headspace. And I'm, I'm humbled that it wasn't informed by what some people might consider a legitimate um, kind of through line. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do remember being in the arena of groups like the name, the name of our local um, awesome steel band was Tropical Ice in North mm-hmm. Dakota. You know, like so, uh, Cliff always called them Yellow Bird bands. You know, um, <laughs> so for Liam to hear me um, working on a thing and say, "Hey, I would love for you to write for me sometime," like what it floored me. You know, and um, and I, I realized even then that I was coming from a much different place. My God, I mean, can you imagine what it was like? to show up at NIU, um, my first engagement there as a grad student, Cliff, he handed me a shirt and he said, uh, uh, Hey, we have a gig next week at, um, Carifet, which is, uh, this, uh, festival of all things, Trinbagonian, um, in downtown Chicago. And we're going to play pan 2000. We're going to play this. And he just listed off all this rep that they had just got done doing. Oh gosh. On one of their tours. I don't know if it was soul at the time or if it was, uh, or Taiwan, like they had, like, so all these people were just like at 11 and I, you know, I could barely read and play at the same time. And I was literally up in my office crying as a grad student and classes hadn't even started yet. You know? Um, so I, when I think about the pan community, um, as someone who's never been to Trinidad and Tobago, um, but 
who has met oh a couple dozen people from there um in large part just because i'm grateful enough to get to visit with many of them and these days even teach them now at niu mm-hmm. i get certain impressions um but everything i've seen from the pan community um a good 80 percent of it was informed by cliff and liam um uh, because I didn't go searching. Like I told you earlier, like there isn't this thing in me that wants to go to Trinidad and Tobago. Like I even had an opportunity once and kind of shied away from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that by no means is that because I don't care about that legacy. It's an incredibly rich legacy that I know I'll probably never fully understand. But if we want to talk about legacy, um, Cliff was nothing but supportive of me and he never asked me to be anything other than what I was. And he would come to concerts of steel bands that I was directing in Illinois or percussion ensembles that had pans um, written in them, you know, and he never poo-pooed it, you know, uh, he would have been entirely like, it would have been t- entirely fine if he did, you know, but he never once said, um, well, anything bad, really. Like, he, he was just really, really cool. And he got himself, oh, easily to like a dozen of my high school percussion ensemble concerts. And he was just such a class act about it. Mm. And, and I think it's in large part because of some of my work with Robert Chapel too, who had been doing a lot of work with Liam at the time. Mm. Uh, he, he, <laughs> he and I have talked uh, plenty of times about how if Pan is going to be in percussion ensemble, it shouldn't just be doubling a silo line, you know? And to me, one of my favorite voices in in uh, in percussion is cello, uh, cello pan, and I love it. It's like this really mutant low register vibraphone, and mm. I just can't get enough of it. Like, um, but how do you look at someone who's spent their life, um, for lack of a word, indoctrinated in pan culture, and say this is like a, a mutant vibraphone? Like, like it, it comes off woefully offensive, you know, uh, when it's something that I'm crazy about. I love it. Uh, I don't know if that is making any sense. No, it does. It's, it's, it's. I mean, did you ever say that to to Cliff or Liam and have I did. them sort of yeah. recoil, recoil a little bit when you said it? No, no. Um, yeah, because was, I'll, I'll bet they weren't actually offended. Well, and I. And this is where I've, um, where it's just me imagining the pan community outside of everyone I've known. Because mm-hmm. everyone I've known in the NIU community uh, of pan uh, has been, uh, how can I put it, very quick to talk about pan legacy, very quick to um, talk the history. Like I, I, I have the speech memorized from our runout gigs, you know, like this is the steel pan, 50 gallon oil drive. You know? um, yeah. But then also I have these great memories of like, this is a JIT Samurai arrangement. Mm-hmm. This is Lord Kitchener. You got to know these names. And, yeah. uh, and that's what that is. So before people are playing Havanas, they're absolutely learning all about uh, Boogsy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, the pan community I've known has been very, um, very quick to embrace all sorts of different um, personalities, all sorts of different voices, all sorts of different ideas. Um, and it's awesome to see, oh, just characters like a Jonathan Scales or mm-hmm. uh, characters like, have you met Darren Roberts yet? Like, I haven't, no. Oh, it's just, he's savage. Like, and, but then like Darren, he can turn around and just shred on drum set, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I guess what I, what I mean by, by this is, 
my experience with the pan community doesn't seem to uh, align from what I've seen from the pan community at large outside of NIU. Um, mm. And I'm afraid that if, like, if I offer any commentary on that outside of church, it might, <laughs> uh, it, I, I might just be speaking out of my ass, really. Well, uh, because, I would say, because so, everything I see um, again makes me feel like it's part of the human condition, mm. uh, um, and it's. It's such a tight knit group of people mm-hmm. who are so incredibly invested in in it and its legacy that the very different personalities that inform that community uh, that's already really raw, you know. And yeah. Well, I mean, I'm looking at I'm, like I'm looking behind you and I see these like I see four beautiful snare drums. Oh. I see a, a deep <laughs> snare drum. I see a slightly deeper, a thinner, and then the thinnest snare drum. Like snare drum culture. I mean, I don't know the history, but I'm just gonna guess culturally comes from a place not so dissimilar from the steel drum in terms of its origins and what it was used for and culturally like different things culturally but in terms of its origins it had a place in a thing some places in the world it was with the military some places in the world it was with french resistance some places in the world it was whatever you know like and for me i when i look at how how I'm clocking the percussion world. Like if I just had to put pins on a board of like, all right, this is happening here. Like the snare drum is like way to the left. Like we know, we know about the snare drum. Now we're going to study it. There's books now and God damn it. You're going to learn De La Cruz one and nine at bare minimum. I don't know about <laughs> two through seven, but one and nine, you're going to learn those. Right. And steel drums. I feel like I'm, I'm now becoming aware that I'm really grateful that I'm in this point where steel drums are still connected culturally to like the snare drum is now removed. The violin is now removed from its cultural bedrock, right? In a way that when you go to see the LA Phil play, you're like, you're not looking at a band of, of, of folk musicians. You're looking at like people who have studied at Juilliard and Curtis and all these other places, right? The steel drum is still in that early stage where we've got people like Booksy Sharp and Ray Holman and Andy Norell. And like, these are people, it's still like, it's still becoming a thing. And I'm really grateful, oddly for the sort of ambiguity that comes from this time that we're in where like, Oh, I'm so with you. Uh, We're trying to figure out who invented the instrument for fuck's sake. Like I I did a million (laughs) educational shows where I'm like Spree Simon and Thick Lip Bartholomew and like all these things, these stories I heard, you know, and now I'm like, I read Kim Johnson's book uh, from Tin Pan to Taspo. I read the illustrated story of Pan and I'm like, fuck, I left out like 75 people in every assembly I gave to second graders, you know, as a college kid. And so, like, I'm very grateful to be in that point right now, actually. But it does, it, it makes me wonder, uh, it, well, I see this sometimes in the percussion community at large, too. Like, it feels like the scarcity mentality where mm-hmm. a lot of people are really eager to lay claim to things because they're scared that if other people do, that somehow right. it'll get away from them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't... I'm by no means am I suggesting that's just in the pan community, uh, but I've certainly seen it in all sorts of parts of what it is just to be a person, you know, <laughs> like, like this, this one guy who really wants to coach the little league team and the, you know, the next dad over is actually a better coach, you know, uh, 
<laughs> and and I think one of these wild things about where Pan is right now is uh, it's there's this free flow of information that violin didn't get uh, when it was mm-hmm. this age, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you really quick. Uh, shortly before this, uh, before this, I got an email this morning uh, from a percussionist in Japan named Mayumi Ota. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't met her, but she's recording a piece that I wrote for one of Liam's. Oh, do you know Malika Green? Uh, yes, but I don't know why. Okay. Uh, she was Sorry. one of Liam's students, uh, uh, oh, about a decade ago. And then she was doing some exceptional work with the CYSO. And then she's, uh, I think, a Fulbright scholar now and might even be in Trinidad. I might be off okay. on that. Um, Pardon my ignorance, but I, no, it's I, cool. I know the name, but I'm not exactly sure why. So I wrote a Pan and Marimba duet like a decade ago when I was a grad student. And now someone in Japan's recording it on a CD, right? Um, and that's like the other side of the planet. <laughs> and violin players didn't get that experience. And neither of us were from Trinidad or, or, or Tobago, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what makes that tricky for me to kind of wrap my head around is like, yeah, how do how do people like me engage Pan without feeling like it's somehow well cultural appropriation? You know. Uh, um, well, okay. Well, let me let me ask you. When you say people like me, and I'm I'm sort of asking the most obvious question here, but like when you say that, what exactly do you mean when you say people like me? Oh, how about? Um, middle-aged cis white guys, you know, um, uh, well, no, let's even take it a step further. Um, when I listen to pan, um, I, I remember the first time I saw desperados, um, on a VCR, it was the dust in the face show. Um, mm-hmm. do you remember this at all? Like this was at 1997, maybe I, and it was like a full-on VCR, and I thought it was extraordinary, right? Mm. Um, but to me, um, just because so much of the the percussion experience is about assimilation, it is about collecting as many crazy and exciting sounds as you can to make something beautiful. To me, it's like, yeah, let's throw let's throw pan in the toolbox right next to a flexitone, right next to a marimba, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so. While I do think I have a, a reasonable sense of the heritage that's informed it, there you were saying it earlier. There's a heritage that informs snare drum too. There's a heritage that informs uh, marimba, vibraphone, like hand pan, right? So, uh, so when I'm writing uh, a piece in four movements that doesn't even touch on Clipsonian ideas, you know, um, if anything, it maybe leans toward Bach. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, that's what I'm saying when I say people like me writing for Pan, um, because I, I don't claim to, um, have a keen insight on that. It's interesting. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I think I'm trying to tease out personally. And I mean, I asked the question out of selfishness because I, I, I don't know how to answer that. When I say, the number of times I've been in conversations with people like Kendall Williams or Jerrion Williams or Odie Franklin or Mark Brooks or, you know, anybody in the Brooklyn, New York scene, you know, panorama scene, when I men- mention, I'm like, well, I'm just a white guy. Like, the, the, the swiftness in which that is cut out of my jargon. By oh, heck yeah. Sure. Is so uh, fast. But the but in the white community that I'm in, 
it's like a prerequisite to acknowledge that that's what I am before I can then speak on the thing I've been doing. And that's for me the dissonance where it's like nobody in the nobody in the steel band community is begging me to confess that I'm white. <laughs> that I have, that I'm from Ohio. I've got a tattoo of Ohio on my wrist. I played, mm. you know, I've got all these things. Like I'm born in a cornfield. I still feel a, 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 a an obligation to say that, but the obligation is to my white colleagues, not my black colleagues. Over time, that's the thing sure. that I feel like I'm coming around to believe. And then, then I have to ask myself, well, why am I saying it? Yeah. Who do I actually care enough about appeasing? Actually, I care more about my black colleagues appeasing them. So I'm going to stop saying that I'm white and that I that I'm a special thing in this community, you know, like as a justification to my white friends. And, and to me, that's the thing in the last year and a half that I've had a real hard time sort of like teasing out that Gordian knot of like, how do we <laughs> how do I how do I sort of have a foot in both pools at the same time? Did you ever uh, hear the story about how the is it the Gordian knot gets solved? No, <laughs> please tell me. I'd love to solve the Gordian knot. I might be wrong on this, but is is the legend behind that that it was like an untieable knot? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And unless I'm mistaken, I think the legend goes that Alexander the Great, uh, as a child, just took his sword and cut it in half. I was just saying, like that's pretty easy. Like this is yeah. pre chainsaw, clearly. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, I, I, and I guess I bring this up because um, I've I've known that temptation to do the the aw shucks like mm-hmm. um, well the well, the aw shucks thing like yeah no no I I dare not dance because you know uh, Midwest white guy <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's clearly from a place of comfort that we cannot even offer that right. Um, yeah. Because yeah, you're right. You're in a panyard. It's pretty obvious you're white. <laughs> you know, um, well, it's, it's the, the one. It's the only thing. Well, I, I, I would. I, I don't want to include gender into this mix because that is something that is still subjective. But the color of my skin, like, like that's the thing. That's the most obvious thing about me. And the idea that that's the thing that I have to spend the most time accounting for to me is like the most obvious counterintuitive thing about the human experience. Yet I, my instinct is still to be like, I'm white before well, yeah. I, before, before then uh, I'm asked by a black Caribbean person to then drill a 140 piece steel band like sure. that, that act should be enough uh, assurance to me that I then don't have to then cop for my whiteness second yet I still do. And that's yeah. the frustrating thing for me as a person that I, I'm still trying to figure out how, if I can cleave that part out of my humanity, I feel like I might be faster, quicker. I might be a better version of myself. All of those things. I know this is normally when you sign off. Um, this does bring us to, uh, we, I think I had something like 14 questions for you. None of which yes, we Yes, please. And you can please uh, go ahead. <laughs> Let's go to that because it's more interesting maybe. Well, no, uh, this does bring me to something that I've been excited to talk with you about um, that I've found to be very helpful for me as well Mm -hmm. that I really wish I could just like sprinkle gift to so many people I know and love in the music community, but um, especially the percussion community, because we keep dipping our toes into some really challenging uh, cultural situations, you know, Mm -hmm. what it is that has you feeling like you need to say these things. Right. Um, uh, What I can tell you is uh, I 
I don't feel that way. Um, though I've had it in my head, right? Uh, but that's manifested not so much in the pan side of things, but on the drum set side of things. Like I like to think I can throw down on kit. I enjoy it. I've done plenty of hours on it. Right. Um, but when I showed up in Chicago and was just schooled like like hard <laughs> by a lot of drum set guys out here, many of whom were not white, you know, uh, there was a part of me was like, wow, am I just not as good as them because I'm white? And I realized, no, it's because they practiced way harder than me. <laughs> you know? You know, they have uh, tendons and muscles just like you do, and well, they've totally, just worked yeah. them more. You know? like, well, and, and, and it was embarrassing that it, like, I spent a good chunk of my grad school experience like trying to be like, man, why don't I groove as hard as these jazz studies majors? Like, oh, because they're jazz studies majors. Like, that's yeah. what they do. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and I, I offer this up because... I feel like sometimes these really rich conversations that people can enjoy in communities mm. never quite happen because we're so scared of either being hurt or hurting one another yeah. in large part, because we don't invest in our life outside of our career all that much uh, as, as a percussion community at large, um, mm. that kind of hustle and grind um, mentality that so many young percussionists have uh, like it it takes a lot to trust that it's okay to spend a saturday afternoon you know hanging out at the local apple fest or something like that you know right, right. um and it has me thinking how helpful it's been for me to have certain friends um who kind of don't care about my percussion career or a wife who herself isn't a musician and so like um Oh gosh, let me think. Uh, so I, I'm like really amped about uh, a basic performance that I have coming up, right? Um, and it's a collection of 12 marimba solos that I wrote, and I have 12 Yamaha artists taking the stage with me, and we're all just going to play a whole bunch of band compositions that I wrote awesome. in an artist residency in Key West. That's great. And my and my wife said something to the effect of, "Oh," and I said, "Hey, do you want to come to Pesic and hear me?" And she said, "Is it that same recital you did two years ago?" I said, "Yeah," and she's like, "Ah, ah." Uh, well, there's a dog show that weekend. <laughs> Do you want to know who else's wife will never come to a PASIC other than my wife? Uh, who is that? Her name is Bonnie Hartzenberger. <laughs> sure. She's married to Russell Hartzenberger. And Russell and Bonnie are two of my favorite people in the world. But she came to one and she was like, oh, no. <laughs> Sure. Well, and, <laughs> like, that's, and this like, is I, that's where okay. I'm so excited to come to uh, one of the things I would – uh, I would like for your listeners to hear you talk about mm. because mm -hmm. I've seen some benefits from it. Um, about five years ago when I was just full on way too busy, I was, Oh gosh, I was teaching at two colleges. I was teaching at two high schools. I had like 60 private students at the time and I was directing the Chicago youth symphony percussion group and heading up a, a camp, uh, like a two week percussion camp in the summers like I, I went and saw a therapist and I found it to be very helpful. Mm -hmm. And uh, even as recently as this last spring, I found myself kind of like dreading just the state of affairs on the planet at large, you know, mm -hmm. and I found it really helpful to go back to that therapist. You've mentioned therapy before. Mm -hmm. um, would you feel comfortable talking about it a little bit? I'm sure. not like we don't need to hear about your therapy, but just therapy in general. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, um, I, before I realized what therapy was, I started a podcast 
Yeah. Like, I think I always knew that talking to other people was important to me personally for my own personal health. Um, when my dad died, my dad died in 2009. Um, yeah. And I think for a long time I didn't, you know, I was having anxiety. I was having panic attacks. I was terrified of dying of Lou Gehrig's disease, which is what my dad died of. Like, you know, but I'm 20, whatever it is, 29 years old. Like I didn't, I wasn't able to deal with it rationally. Um, and then finally my wife was like, I can't be your therapist. I'm your wife. Like, I love you. And I want to be, I want to watch like Seinfeld and yeah. laugh and then go to bed. And like, I can't be the person you're complaining about your dad or your career or whatever it to every day. And that was a hard moment. And I was finally like, fuck, okay, I need to go talk to somebody. And so I, I started, you know, I, I bounced around to a few different therapists until I finally got to somebody that was like, Oh, this is what therapy is. Yeah. Where they were literally legitimately questioning me on everything I thought and not in a way to make me change my beliefs, but just to shore up why it was I was thinking what I was thinking. Um, and so, I mean, for me, that was, it was nice to go to a third person who didn't know anybody I worked with, didn't know my wife and didn't know my dad. Right. They're not role players. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't have a say in what I play on stage at Carnegie hall or any of these other places. They don't have a say in what we eat at dinner at night. Like it was just a third person I could go and be like, my wife's a piece of shit, even though I didn't mean it <laughs> at all. Like that's, that's just what I needed to say in that moment, you know? Sure. And that's what a therapist is for. And then the therapist can be like, well, why do you feel that way? And I'd be like, well, she said this thing. And then the therapist 20 minutes later finally gets you to admit that your wife's not a piece of shit and that perhaps you're seeing it through these, this, this, this distorted lens that you need to recognize is a distorted lens that you're looking through. And maybe today you can't take that lens off. But mm -hmm. the thing today is just to realize that you have a lens on. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, no. like that honestly is like the first, like someone being like, you're actually, you know, when you have a panic attack by reaching to grab your door handle of your car. Like, like that's a thing. <laughs> you're, you're not panicked about your car exploding. You're panicked about your dad shaking to death in a hospital bed. Those two things are not related, right? <laughs> right? And it was like like six months of somebody being like, right? Until I finally was like, yeah, you're right. Me grabbing my door handle is not the same as, you know, holding my dad while he was shaking to death, you know, of Lou Gehrig's yeah. disease. Like, those aren't the same thing. And so, like, in terms of therapy, whether it have to do with grief, whether it have to do with your own personal struggles with, like, your grad degree program, whether it have to be with a girlfriend breaking up with you. I'm not saying everybody needs to go to a therapist immediately anytime you're feeling stressed because, again, like, I don't. I don't want you to waste your money either. If you're like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, my groceries are too expensive. Like that, maybe don't go to your therapist for that. But like, you know, if you're th like, for me, it was legitimately a lot of like, I don't want to do what I'm doing anymore. Yeah. I don't want to play music. I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be married. I don't want to be in a chamber music group. I don't want to teach steel band. I don't want to travel. I don't like, it, it was all these things that were like, this is my life. What do you mean yeah. I don't want to play music? Fuck me. I've been doing this since fifth grade. I'm fucked if I can't do that. And so that was the moment when, like, I needed to go to talk to a third party who could be like, 
you've told me this thing to be like a dramaturg for your life, not a director, but a dramaturg. Like the dramaturg yeah. tells you, Hey, you've told me that this is the point of your story. Here's where you're going. It's actually counter to what you've told me you want to do. Yeah. Is that what you want to do? And then I can be like, well, shit, no, that's not at all what I was thinking. I need to go back towards this thing and maybe be okay with a little bit of the personality issues that I have with Jason, for example, in so percussion for over 15 years. And he certainly got with me, you know, and like, oh, okay, maybe, oh, actually, if I'm okay with that, then that makes this other thing way easier, yeah. you know, and that's now 15 years into it. So anyway, to answer your question in a very long about way. I I don't think it's ever bad for somebody to go to a third objective party and be like, I feel like a piece of shit and yeah. I'm terrible and I feel like I'm the worst person in the world. Like, that's okay. Go do that to a third person. Don't do it to your chamber music partner. Don't sure. do it to the person you're trying to learn Ben Wallen's percussion quartet with. Do it with do it with a like a court or like a mandated like therapist. Somebody who knows how to do it because that's in the same way you go for a head cold or you've got the flu or you're pissing blood. Like like for me when I wake up and I feel like I don't want to go to soap percussion anymore. That's the equivalent of me pissing out blood. And what I need to do is call my therapist and be like I don't want to play music. And she could be like, well, you realize music is awesome, right? <laughs> you know, and like, that's the back and forth that I feel like a therapist. I can't do that with my wife. You know, if I go with my wife now, I go, I don't want to play music anymore. And she's like, well, quit. Right. You know, like, that's not, that's not what I want. I don't need that right now. I need, to, I need to hear a therapist be like, you should think long and hard about what it is you're doing. You know, I've, uh, uh, I'm sorry if you hear running water above my head. <laughs> you know? Sorry. Um, something you mentioned was that you went to a couple of therapists before one worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known a lot of people for whom that's the case, where uh, it's not much unlike a private teacher. Like you might have a couple that are okay, but then one just like sends you to the moon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, but also that dynamic of like what it is to bring what you're wrestling with to other relationships that otherwise could be really healthy and happy and engaging. You know what I mean? There, uh, there are things that I've, that I won't say here. I'm generally a very open person. Like I, I I'm a warts and all sort of guy. Uh, there are about two things in the world that I've told my therapist and I've told my wife and I haven't told my mom. Wow. You know, like, and I think that's important. I think it's important to have somebody in your life who you can be like, listen. <laughs> totally. This well, thing happened and I don't know what to do with it. But it, it feels like it uh, it kind of goes into that ter- territory we were talking about earlier where I feel like our brain just isn't quite wired yet physiologically mm-hmm. to handle some of the stuff that's going on. Um, because you're right. Uh, I think there was a time where we just weren't inundated with so many ideas and thoughts and concerns. So it would make sense that things would just get so intense that we need uh, someone else to help de like decode what's going on, you know? Uh, And I hear you. I suspect a lot of people have like that, that real deep thing. I know I have, I have a couple of things that way too, that like, Mm -hmm. Like you don't dare like share that because 
you you dread the repercussions of like what would happen. (laughs) It's like Um, when I think like I don't let me ask you like if when you think of secrets that you've kept from the world for whatever reason, whether good or bad, or like you know you've robbed a bank and you won't tell anybody, like you don't need to cop to that. But like, can you cop to me the number of things that you've kept? from everybody in your life but one or two people Let me think you don't need to tell that. me what they are but like just oh, the, sure. number, the number of things can you think because for me yeah i can think of like two. there's two i can think of yeah. two that i i know that two or three people in the world know yeah that's where i'm at and, and it's important to me and i'm glad to say that the people who do know are the people that matter a lot to me mm-hmm. you know I, i've gotten to a place where i can trust things i Something I know with my wife, uh, she's a veterinarian and she has mm-hmm. like this crazy intense job because uh, during COVID, uh, she's she's done a whole lot of um, house calls where she'll do at home euthanasias. Like literally during, yeah, literally during no. this call, she like did an at home euthanasia stop, while ben. we've been uh, podcasting. You know? Now I'm going to cry. Stop saying shit like that. Now I got to go <laughs> to my therapist, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm saying this because like Jen's job is way harder than mine, you know? So a bad day for me looks way different than a bad day for her. And like it's it's on me to make myself available to her as the best husband I, I want to be, and and I take um, I take a certain degree of pride in that, you know. Mm. And if it means me going to a therapist so that I'm not like just shoveling all of my like like <laughs> it was so hard because I saw a concentration camp when I was seven. Josh, do you want to hear something messed up? Like really messed up. Yes. You'll remember I mentioned that I didn't see many old people. Yeah, I honestly believed as a kid for a couple of days that um, concentration camps were what we did with old people. Like as a kid, I had that thought for a while. But like, there's no reason you would think otherwise. I mean, just in defense of little Ben Wallen, like, there's no. I mean, I also sat. I sat in the nook of like outside where the fire. The fireplace came down to the ground, like yeah. the, the fire stack or whatever, uh, what, uh, chimney. It's called a chimney sure. in, in, in the parlance of our times. Um, my dad, I found a piece of coal. My dad told me that if I just held it tight enough, it'd become a diamond. And then I realized, like, that's what parents tell their kids when they don't want to babysit them. So, like, I just sat outside with a piece of coal for, like, a whole weekend being like, yes. Yes. And my dad was like, oh, I can take a nap. You know, (laughs) but but I think like what it is to be a person is so much messier than what we see on TV or what we read on social media. And I love that Jen, like she really wouldn't care if I gave up my music career and decided to go into like the post office and had a had a job there. Do you know what I mean? Like, totally. uh, She loves me, and I just happen to be a a music teacher in her eyes. You know, and when I stress about my career, I take comfort in that. Much like how I wouldn't love her any less if she decided to quit doing such a tough job, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that we, we have to work to make space emotionally for each of us at night. Um, One of the things that was really hard for me in the last year is um, I'm quite uh, empathetic when it comes to my students. Like Mm -hmm. when they hurt, I hurt. And when they feel joy, I feel joy. You know, um, if there is a big gripe about taking lessons with me, it's just that we talk too much and we don't hit things with sticks enough, you know. You're an empath. Uh, That's what we call you. Well, uh, sure. (laughs) Um, 
and uh, so when all of my students were hurting last year, that was hard for me, you know, like yeah. um, hard to the point where like it took a, it took a toll. Like it was hard for me to want to teach. Um, and strangely enough, when there was like all of these people like jumping online and uh, it felt like this big creativity land rush going on mm. during COVID where everyone was doing the next most uh, amazing video with drone footage and awesome lighting and stuff. Like I just didn't have an appetite for it, mm -hmm. you know, and I ended up basically going on a whole bunch of these calls with my wife, you know, um, and seeing people from all over Chicago and all these different suburbs and all of them are in different stages of grief, you know, and it was such a different kind of way to spend a day than, you know, being a music teacher or a composer. Right. Um, well, it's one of those things. I mean, I think, um, I don't know, like this last year and a half has been hard. The thing that has been the hardest for me too, is like, it was the one, I don't know. Like I got, I got hoodwinked into thinking this, like, you know, prior to COVID I walk in the room, I'm the adult, I'm the authority figure. I'm going to do this thing. You're going to listen to I'm going to leave. And then all of a sudden we're all on zoom. We're all dealing with the same issue. Yeah. Right. But one of the first times in history for both teachers and students to be experiencing the same thing long-term. Right. Nobody alive has ever had to deal with this. Right. And so we're all trying to negotiate at the same time. All of the issues that were being talked about, about mental health, depression, you know, how to, I was getting emails from NYU and Princeton all about like taking care of your students' mental health. And I'm like, bitch, I'm about to jump off my roof. If I have to teach one more, I love Bugsy Sharp, but if I have to lecture on that motherfucker one more time, I'm going to kill myself. Sure. You know, and that was like, you know, uh, September of last year. And I had a whole year to go. And, and I'm saying that just to admit that I was weak and I was not prepared. I, I did, I don't think I did a great job, but in that moment, I wasn't allowed to say that I, that I was in the same boat as my students. So I was like, I need them to open their cameras. Like I'm trying to log on. Can they, can they just not have their names on the screen? Can I see their <laughs> stupid, silly faces? If I have to show my dumb face, you got to show your dumb face. And so for a year I was just, I literally would log off and be like, I need four rum and Cokes before I can actually see the world remotely sanely. Yeah. And now we're back in person and there was a little bit of adjustment, but it's like, it's weird. It's like, we're not even acknowledging the last year and a half. <laughs> like we're back in person. Everybody's like, this is great. I'm like, you all had a gun in my mouth for two years. Like, can we talk about that for two seconds? Jesus Christ. You know? And I know it wasn't great for you either, but like, come on, like, let's just say that sucked. Right. You know, you know, I have so many students that handled this the last year and a half so much better than most of the adults I know, you know, yeah. um, well, for any number of reasons, but I hear you. And that whole notion of like, it looks normal now, but it's off. Like it, mm -hmm. it, it makes me think of like windows safe mode, you know, <laughs> where like, <not laughs> like, functions are quite there. You know? <laughs> you're like, you keep clicking on something. You're like, this used to do something, but now well, it only, it only opens up that one word doc every time I click on it. You know? Well, sure. <laughs> you know? And like, there's only like so much. Yeah. We, um, I, you probably know. Do you know? Yeah, of course you know Greg, uh, my colleague at NIU, Greg Beyer. Um, yeah, who's yeah, yeah, just, of course. He's just a beast, right? Like he's yeah, yeah. and it's and he and I like we 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 do a lot of thinking and and hard work to try to offer the best studio experience we can to the students at NIU. And 
uh, we like both of us don't have kids, Greg and me. So like, it's almost indecent, like how much we care about the students at NIU, you know, like, so <laughs> your poor students are like trying to figure out ways to like help you adopt other kids. So you can be like, <laughs> you have, a, you have another project other than their Shahrazad or their Baron Balsolo or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. <It's> like, <laughs> Please God adopt. Can I help you adopt a 23 year old? It'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it's crazy because like it's a pretty tight knit group of students, and um, you know Greg's very thorough. <laughs> you know? Yes, so I do know that about Greg. When it came to a culture of COVID, like uh, we we tried really hard to stay in front of all health you know health concerns that way. So very appropriately, we'll have students who like they're pretty quick to quarantine themselves if they've come into contact with someone. And yeah. so even though our school at large has very you know specific protocol. Um, there's even kind of like an understood, like, don't mess around with this type of vibe in the studio. So sure enough, last uh, last week or maybe the week before, there was a, a student um, who uh, quarantined, who lived with three other percussion students who then quarantined. And then like, like so there was this like kind of chain of, of kids quarantining themselves in the studio. And then I even got a little spooked because I was thinking like, oh man, I, I saw this kid for two lessons that week. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I quarantined that weekend, you know? So just like, like just overnight, it felt like this progress that we had just kind of grinded to a slow and then it got back up and running, you know? Um, is this moment and, every, and everyone's fine. Thank goodness, you know, but. Uh, this is yeah, the moment so, as, a, as a teacher where like, I'm. I, I have no hate, and again, like people are gonna be pissed off by hearing this. I have no hate in my heart for like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, <laughs> but what I wish they would have spent their time was on is like, you know, it's cool. I, like, listen, I want to go to like, I'd love to go to space. I sure. I, I follow Neil deGrasse Tyson. I listen to that man obsessively. Like, yes, space exploration. But right now, what we needed was a cloth that if you just go. And if it turns green or red, you can walk in a fucking room. <laughs> That's what we fucking needed. I'm sorry for the bad language. We didn't need a dick-shaped space, dick-shaped rocket in space. We needed a, a, a napkin that when you breathe into it, it turned red or green. Like, and I genuinely think Elon or Jeff could have come up with that. And then you could walk into a room and teach a snare drum lesson with zero worry. But no. <laughs> we went to space in a dick-shaped rocket. And so here we are teaching, you know, Porgy and Bess and, you know, Booksy Sharp's music while all freaking, you know, having mental breakdowns. But uh, anyway, that's I, – I don't know what my point was there, Ben. But uh, 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 You like Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just go off on random tangents and get really pissed off and wave my hands around. Um, but uh, You want to hear – do you want to hear a quick Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, I do. I love uh, that idea man. that has helped me in the last year for some yeah, reason? Please. Uh, it's it's a bit of a riddle that like I, I still haven't quite figured out why I take so much comfort in it. But he he talks about time travel and mm. it. And have you heard him t ever talk about like the <laughs> the the biggest mistake most people uh, make when they're t thinking about time travel? Mm is they forget that the earth is moving. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if you don't factor in for where the earth, where the earth was in the past, that you're just going <laughs> to... You know? You're going to end up in the middle of the universe just floating? Well, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and I guess for me, like, that's helped me stay in the moment sometimes. Like, to think about, like, the past, it very much is the past. You know, like, when I was comfortable with certain ideas or things that have changed or when I have regrets or when I get nervous about the future, like... It helps me stay in the room with students or with people that I love, you know. Yeah. Um, 
Well, the, his phrase too that that has brought me solace, and my dogs are going nuts right now, Ben. So I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put a pin in this, and we can come back to part two because I've already stolen an hour and thirty four minutes of your of your life, and I immediately regret it. So I apologize. Um, no, it's good. <laughs> but it was the the idea that the Earth, or the the universe, is under no obligation to make sense to you. Absolutely. And yeah. I feel like that when I when I'm teaching steel drums, or I'm teaching music, or I'm teaching phasing and Reich's music, or I'm teaching you know how to play drum set and Bugsy Sharp's music, like I'm like. So this is under no obligation to make sense to you right now. It barely makes sense to me as a 42-year-old, and I've been playing it for over 20 years. And it still is now just kind of coming into view. So for you, just fucking chill. This is the, You're looking in a kaleidoscope right now. It's going to be great. That's what you're paying for. And that's kind of the thing I feel like I'm, I'm trying to come to as a teacher. Well, I hear you. And I would also uh, offer up, I suggest, not just as a teacher, but a dude in his 40s or a husband, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I I imagine your Lutheran minister wife would say something similar, that God doesn't owe you any explanation. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like For her, grace is grace. As a Lutheran, you get grace. And and you don't have to be theological here to agree or disagree, but like – in the Lutheran theology, grace is given to you and you don't – there's no explanation. Yep. And that's fucking maddening. That's terrifying. <laughs> that's so infuriating. God damn it. I need a, I need a coupon to show that I got these 50 cents off. That's, there's a cause and response. You can't just give me grace. That's ridiculous. Why I didn't give you anything. You know, and I, I feel like that sort. that's something I've learned from my – it's taken like 16 you – know, almost 20 years now with my wife to be like, yeah, you're right. Uh, why did i fight you for so long you know well i'm excited to hear 20 years from now uh, what else you learned you know (laughs) because because to me the big riddle is what does a person do then like what does that compel us to do at that point you know Uh, and i'm i'm grateful that both you and your wife and my wife my wife and me we we get to spend our days doing really uplifting though challenging things like that's not a bad way to spend our adulthood you know not at all and and ben i i again i i I am very grateful for your time here and my 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 policy is the door is always open and i secretly want to book you as soon as possible because i know you have 13 other questions that you wrote down that i'm very psyched to answer (laughs) we did get we got got through (laughs) one of them um, but, uh, but that's okay. Like, and this is, I like developing relation. I like also listeners coming back and hearing a, a, you know, you say something then in the second podcast where they're like, Oh, I wish he didn't say that. And then they come back for the third podcast. And they're like, <laughs> oh, he redeemed himself. Like that for me is what human interaction is about. And so I'm grateful for your time here. And I hope you take me up on the second invite whenever you're ready. Oh, I'd love to. One quick thing. We never even got to talk about the piece that I'm writing for Liam. Um, Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, Ben. No worries. No, I bring this up uh, in large part because you would be interested to know. uh, Do you know that break drum that Cliff would play at NIU? Like, does that mean anything to you? uh, Yes, but uh, more culturally than it does anything else. Oh, sure. Like 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 his actual break drumming. Sure. But like there's a gorgeous break drum there um, Mm -hmm. that just over the years of Cliff uh, playing it so i uh it's it's a piece for pan and cello uh not cello mm. pan but like actual cello that liam's going to wow. be premiering in november awesome. and uh yeah i i wanted to talk to you about the process of it so maybe we yeah, could talk again before november 6th um yeah. specifically that because it's wild because i've got like 200 cliff samples and a whole bunch of cliff interviews and stuff and it's been okay. crazy writing this piece for Liam about Cliff. 
And okay, well, I was let's... just hoping to unpack it with someone who also knew and loved Cliff, you know. Okay, just in in the interest of our my interest my four listeners' interest, um, <laughs> let's book a second time to just really drill down on that because I if yeah. you can send me a score or anything like I can take a look at it ahead of time. I would love to really just sort of get in there with a hoe and a, a hoe blade and sort of chew it all up and be like, what's in here? <laughs> sure. I mean, that'd be really fun. Yeah. And you said it's November 6th is the premiere. Yeah. And uh, Liam's going to be uh, doing a recital at NIU and probably webcasting it. You okay. know? Um, yeah. He's doing some stuff with Kevin Bobo on that. And um, uh, another piece that, well, a couple of premieres, you know, so great. Yeah. Liam's, right. well, let, he's awesome. Let's tell you, don't need to convince me of that. I, I, oh, <laughs> I a, suppose he's, yeah. a, he's a multinational treasure. Uh, we don't, <laughs> we have to share him with Trinidad, but Trinidad and Tobago, but, um, but let's hook up before then. That'd be great to chat about that stuff. Ben, uh, I, I've really enjoyed this hour and 40 minutes. I hope you did too. And I hope we got something out of it. I hope people enjoyed it, but, um, I really enjoyed, enjoyed this and I hope you stay healthy and safe. And, um, in the meantime, I look forward to seeing you again soon. I don't know when that's going to be in person, but maybe, in, maybe at PASIC, we should just like keep it traditional and we just kind of walk by each other and be like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it might be best if we never see each other in person. Like, that's, that's, well, really- yeah, well, and I got to tell you about one of those walk-by conversations sometime when the day is right, too, because yes, uh, right. you pulled me out of a really uh, funky space there for a while. So, Oh. I Uh-oh. know. Uh-oh. Yeah. You got dogs you got to go take care of, though. It's cool. <laughs> yes, I do. She, poor Anya is going to chew my leg off. I don't get feed her. But we'll pick up here where we left off. Ben, thank you so much. Stay healthy. And uh, I will look forward to chatting with you again soon. And please say hello to Greg and Liam for me and Yuko. Give Yuko a hug. Tell Liam and Greg I love them, but give Yuko a hug. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right, Thanks so much. It was really fun. All right. Take it easy, Ben. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch. Great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.